Is it really my fault? Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of September 27, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. The Judean exiles in Babylon complained that God was not fair since they were being punished for the sins of their fathers. But God rejects this notion. Through Ezekiel, he makes it clear that they are reaping the consequences of their own sin, which ultimately brings death. In order for them to live, they must repent. Not surprisingly, in the chaos of the world today, many of us make the same excuses. It's not my fault, we complain, and we blame others, the press, corporations, politics, our families, and more. Jesus' parable about the two sons who were asked to work in their father's vineyard warns us not to make excuses or just give lip service to God, but each of us is to take appropriate action, beginning with repentance. Due to technical problems, we don't have the lectionary readings today. If you can, pause to read Ezekiel 18 and Matthew 21. The exact verses are listed in the description. Now, let us join Reverend David Pelegi for the sermon. Well, this evening, as um, I think everybody knows, is Arab Yom Kippur, the beginning of a uh, very somber day in Israel a day of confession and repentance. And when it came to choosing the passages to to preach from, you know, it was obvious that uh, we should talk about directly, at least talk about Yom Kippur. And actually, the more that I thought about it, it was obvious that the readings given uh, given to us today in the lectionary, and here at Christ Church we use the Revised Common Lectionary, were actually perfect for Yom Kippur, as we'll see in uh, just a moment. And our passage that uh, I'd like to begin with is, uh, is Ezekiel chapter chapter 18. And this is, of course, a passage uh, about repentance. And this passage has a lot, certainly had much to say to the people of Judah over 2,500 years ago. And it's still very relevant for us today in the uh, the time in which we live. Of course, the context, for those of you who may not be familiar, is simply this. The kingdom of Israel, house of Israel, the house of Judah rebelled uh, against God. The people of Israel, the northern kingdom was was uh, brought or taken into exile because of its sin. And uh, the kingdom of Judah lasted for a bit longer. They had a few good kings, such as uh, Hezekiah and Josiah, they also had uh, many wicked and uh, evil leaders. And they uh, refused uh, to obey the Lord. God sent a prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was to be a watchman or a sentry to warn the people yes, uh, to repent before it was too late. People of Judah 
uh, did not listen. They did not listen to the moral and spiritual advice that uh, Ezekiel gave. Neither did they listen to his political advice as well. They insisted on rebelling against the mighty Babylonian Empire, a little bit like Botswana declaring war on the United States of America. And, of course, they were uh, eventually crushed. The temple was destroyed, and in 586, um, the, you might say the elite or the cream of the, of the society went into exile to Babylon. But there had actually been an exile uh, a few years before that. And that's where Ezekiel, where we find Ezekiel. He was taken um, into exile by the Babylonians before the destruction in 586. And he's prophesying in, in Babylon. And his prophecies concern the future of Jerusalem, which he says is going to be bleak. It concerns the fate of the exiles who are already in Babylon. And of course, he also talks about God's judgment that comes upon the nations. But as we see in Ezekiel chapter 11, judgment starts in the house of God. Judgment starts in the temple. And only after Judah is judged. Uh, will the nations surrounding Israel be judged? And it's in chapter 18 that um, of Ezekiel that he has to confront the exiles. And the exiles have a big complaint. Their big complaint, uh, maybe 2,500 years old, but in actual fact, is, it's also very contemporary and it's very relevant. Basically, it goes like this. We uh, are not responsible. It's not our fault. And God isn't there. That's the, that is the essence of the complaint. Why isn't God fair? Why isn't their fault? Because they insist, they believe that they're being punished unfairly. That they're being punished for the sins of their parents or their grandparents and they don't actually deserve to be in exile. They don't deserve to be in a strange country. They don't deserve to have been uprooted uh, and brought uh, to, uh, to another place. Uh, they're, of course, they're confused. and there's, It's chaotic in a way. And there's a sense of hopelessness amongst them. But in no way are they willing to take responsibility and in fact, this is the meaning of the proverb. The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Yes, the, father, the fathers have eaten these, uh, these grapes and somehow it is in a negative way, it is affecting the children. By the way, you hear this same complaint in Jeremiah and we have the same complaint in Lamentations. Where people are, they're protesting, you might say, or they're complaining uh, about God. And of course, God wants to answer this complaint. He wants to answer the complaint that he's not fair. And he wants to uh, help people understand 
exactly who is responsible and why. These are, of course, very serious times uh, in which the, in which people uh, in which people are living. And so he begins by saying, "As surely as I live." declares the sovereign and the Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. Yes, that's, you might say, truth number one. There are some very, very important, basic, fundamental truths. And we may have heard these over and over again, but I think sometimes, from what I hear, from my environment, and my surroundings, and from other uh, Christians, I'm not sure that we've fully taken these on board. And so the first, yes, the Father and the Son belong to me. And it's the Lord's way of saying that, you know, here we have individual responsibility. This is, you can't fall back on the clan or the tribe, or hereditary. Uh, And you can't say, you know, we are at fault, or they are at fault. The Lord is saying here, yes, I'm going to judge each person as an individual. I'm not holding the the entire nation responsible. Although sometimes that happens. But in this case, the Lord is saying this so that people can't say, Yes, I ha- it doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, I'm being unfair, as I said, I'm being unfairly punished, God. You know, it's what happened back there in the 1960s. They're responsible for the mess that we're in today. Don't blame me, and why should I suffer because of, of what my ancestors did or my relatives did or my fellow countrymen did 50 years ago? And God says, that's not the, that is not the measure by which I'm judging you. I'm judging you as individuals. And then the second, yes, and very, very, uh, you might say, um, harsh reality, but yet a, a reality nonetheless. It says, the soul that sins will surely die. Meaning, you as an individual, yes, will live or die, yes, depending on whether we will live or die, depending on whether we continue to sin. And God here in this chapter, he sets out, yes, a very stark, stark choice for the people of Israel. It's life or death. And Israel can choose. Now, and I think it's also important to, at the end of this chapter, the, uh, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Yes, that's verse... Um, no, no, verse 31. Yes, so... Thir- uh, 18.31, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. In chapter 33 of Ezekiel, the Lord said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so here I think we have to, we probably should be really clear about something. Because I I think these two verses clear up, hopefully clear up for us some 
uh, theology or some mistaken notion as of, um, of how we understand God or how we uh, understand sin. I think there are many Christians, especially in the West, uh, even if we don't sometimes vocalize it, we have the view, perhaps the sentiment, the feeling, that death came into the world as a punishment for sin, meaning God punished Adam and Eve and is punishing us because of our sin. And there could be nothing further than the truth. God does not, is not the author of death. God, um, death is God's enemy, as we read in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is it not? And the verse doesn't say, yes, um, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked whom I, who I will kill or who will die at the Lord's hands. Neither does Romans 6 say the wages of sin, yes, are the wages of sin, death, you know, by God or by the Lord. It's not the Lord that's killing us. Sin is the consequence of rebellion. It is the consequence of rejecting God. When we turn away from God, when we disobey, we're turning away from uh, we're turning away from our our union, our relationship with Him. We're turning away from um, His love. We're turning away from His presence. And the consequence of being out of God's presence or being out of fellowship with God is death. And that's why in Ephesians chapter two it says we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Now, why is all this important? Because the context of this, the context of where death comes from and how it enters the world becomes very important as in the way that we should be understanding our theology or even having our, even our view of God. And so many of us, are used to, we're used to hearing preaching about we're sinners, we, need, we have guilt, we need to be forgiven. That is true. We are all sinners and we are guilty and we need forgiveness. But equally, just as importantly, we need life because otherwise we are trapped into death. Where the, the devil has used, used the fear of death, right, to uh, control us and to paralyze us. And God's solution here isn't simply just forgiveness. And don't forget, this is happening at a time when there's uh, sacrifices going on. There, the people of Israel are uh, going uh, into the temple during Yom Kippur. So there's atonement, yes, but there's still death. And that's, uh, God offers life, and he says the way of life will come if you repent. Repentance, yes, becomes the key to living. 
Yes, and here life, what does life mean in this context, in the context of Ezekiel? Life here is uh, a relationship with God. And while it's not stated very clearly, it's certainly understood, yes, that this relationship with God, even uh, in what we call the Old Testament, continues after death. Continues after death. And that's what the Bible, this is indeed uh, what the Bible offers. It offers life. But the people of Israel have to make a choice. And of course, this is a choice that runs all the way through the scripture. It runs through the the Old Testament. It runs through the New Testament. It actually starts in the Garden of Eden. Yes, it starts in the Garden of Eden where God, again, gives a choice and where our ancestors decided to disobey. And then God then uh, takes the people of Israel out of Egypt and he's always uh, presenting before them, especially in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, I'm giving you a choice this day. Choose life over death. What is life? Life is obedience. Life is uh, walking in fellowship and in covenant relationship with God. What is death? Death is... uh, Here, let's read the verse. It says, uh, and from verse 30, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Israel has a choice, and every individual must make that choice. See, the message of the prophets then, and the message, the same message that speaks to us now, is that we may not all be guilty. We may not have, we may not be guilty, those of us in this room, of bringing the mess, yes, uh, that the world is in today. Okay? We may not be guilty for or for for doing something uh, like that. This was, you know, politicians or. Uh, the media, whoever you want to blame. And we'll come to that in just a minute. But we may not be guilty, but certainly all of us are responsible. Now, in the chapter 18, it goes on, uh, and it's very specific, by the way, uh, because we're here when it's talking about sin, uh, it's not talking about something abstract. It's talking about things that are very very specific things that uh, the people of Israel are doing uh, that uh, is bringing about death. And so in the chapter, we have a few examples. Yes, who is a a person who's not righteous? A person who is um, not righteous is someone who eats at mountain shrines, meaning someone who uh, visits the high places of gods other than the God of Israel, or someone who defiles his neighbor neighbor's wife. Here we're talking about uh, 
sexual immorality, someone who oppresses the poor and needy, someone who commits robbery, yes, he who does not return what he took in a pledge. Let's say that uh, uh, someone came and had to borrow money from you, and you said, I need a guarantee. And so someone gives you a guarantee, such as their cloak, okay? But uh, then they come and give, return you the money, but you don't return, uh, for example, you don't return the cloak. So you're cheating, and, it, and it, I think this, it's obvious that you're cheating people who are weak or powerless, yes? Um, someone who um, lends money uh, at excessive interest, okay? And the, the Lord says, Will such a man live? He will not, because he has done all these detestable things. He will surely be put to death, and his blood will be upon his own head. He will be responsible. And by the way, when we're talking about sin in the Hebrew Bible, because of its pervasive, yes, very pervasive nature, because it's a lot more sometimes a lot more complicated and a lot more insidious than we think. They have to have a number of metaphors. And sometimes, especially in the early part of the Hebrew Bible, sin is a burden. Sin is described as a burden. And then sin later, as we get into the, the prophets, sin is described as a debt. Yes, it's a debt. It's something that we owe God and actually something that we can owe others. And then the book of Leviticus uh, and the book of Ezekiel understand sin as a stain. Sin is an impurity and it pollutes the land. And if the land gets polluted, the temple, the city of Jerusalem uh, is, becomes polluted, then God's presence is pushed, pushed out uh, of his temple and the land will vomit its inhabitants. This happens to the Canaanites. It also happens to Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's very interesting that some of the specific sins I just mentioned here, yes, are sins that bring about, uh, these are sins of impurity, moral impurity, and they bring about um, uh, a pollution, you might say, or a stain on the land. Um, but the book of Leviticus talks about three things, idolatry, yes, the shedding of blood, and sexual immorality. These bring a curse, and these also bring, uh, minimize, or you might say, push out God's presence. And so sin, again, is something very specific. What's the solution? It's the solution is very simple. That the people of Israel repent. That they stop uh, their offenses. And it says here, uh, I think something that may be very, perhaps very encouraging, or uh, maybe even more than, more than encouraging, um, it says that the following. It says, um, Therefore, house of Israel, in verse 30, I will judge each of you according to his ways. 
declares the sovereign Lord. So God's going to judge, and we're not going to be held responsible for what our father did or our grandfather did, but we will be held responsible. Yes, we're being held responsible, or they're being held responsible for their own sin. Um, And then it says, turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. That's what we think of. Think of, okay, repentance is a turning. We're turning away from evil. We are are going to stop doing uh, those things, yes, which displease the Lord or which hurt our neighbor. Great. But actually it goes on, and I think this is the most important. It says, um, if you rid yourselves of these things, I want you to get a new heart and a new spirit. So the Lord is saying to the people of Israel, turn away, but get a new heart and get a new spirit. Now what is that, at least to me, it tells me that the Lord is interested, more interested in just forgiving sin. He's more interested, I mean, he's not only interested in us stopping sin or repenting or changing, but actually he's looking for an inner transformation. He's looking for some kind of renewal, some kind of change, a new heart and a new spirit. But he says, you go out and get a new heart and a new spirit. But the interesting, challenging response to all of this is that two places, two other places here in this book, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Chapter chapter 36, but also here in chapter 11, it says... um, to, uh, it says, I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Oh, this is something the Lord's going to do. Then they will follow my decrees and keep my laws. They will be uh, my people and I will be their God. Yes, in chapter 36 it talks about uh, once they have a new heart and a new spirit and God himself will dwell in their midst. So what is it? Are they going out to get this new heart? Or is God giving them the new heart? And here we have a tension. And we have a paradox. Yes, which uh, really repentance revolves around this. Is this something I'm doing in my own strength? Or is this something God doing in me and through me? And we could easily, easily become paralyzed by all this. We could do all kinds of theology. We could try to figure it out. Is it, do I do it first? And then God responds, do I, does God uh, call me? And then, you know, somehow I respond. Is this human? Is this divine? And I can only say, I can only suggest that without a question, this is a mystery. There's no question, there's no doubt. We don't fully understand this as human beings. 
we need to we enter into a partnership with with God. We do something, we do our part, and God does his. Whether he does it first or we do it last, I don't know. But our second reading, I think, picks this up very, very well. Second reading today was from Philippians. And in the, uh, the reading from Philippians, we have these quite famous verses. Uh, it talks about Jesus being a nature, being uh, in the very nature, uh, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And it goes on. Uh, Paul recites this probably what was a, an early church hymn, something that was sung or chanted uh, in the early churches. And then he says, after saying, uh, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Everyone knows that verse? Gabriel knows it. Then he says, wait a minute, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Which is it? Is it I'm doing this? God doing this? And we can have all kinds of explanations. But there is a partnership. Yes, there is a, a, a cooperation with God. We respond. We repent. We choose life. God works in us. Again, I'm not, I'm not sure about the timing. And nobody can be dogmatic about this. And as soon as he says, by, by the way, as soon as Paul says, um, you know, God is at, at work in us, you know, according to his good purpose, then he goes on and says, now you have a responsibility to do the following. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Do these things. So we need to understand that when we talk about repentance, it's not just feeling sorry. It's not just having shame or being embarrassed. Yes, but uh, it's indeed very, very, certainly very practical. It is first turning away from those things which displease the Lord and hurt our neighbor. Secondly, yes, it's allowing the Lord to work in us and through us, yet at the same time taking responsibility. And thirdly, I'd like to say that um, repentance is not, and we've said this many times in this church, but it, uh, it can be repeated uh, virtually every Sunday because I think it's very, very essential. It's, repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is something that should be a part of our, uh, our walk with the Lord 
uh, and it's something that should happen frequently or as often as we need it. Jesus begins Mark's gospel by saying, repent, and in Greek it's literally repent and keep on repenting. And yes, believe the gospel. The message of John, the message of Jesus is repentance, repentance. And for those who somehow think, well, now that uh, Jesus has died for our sins and Jesus fulfills what's uh, there in Leviticus 16, he's the fulfillment of of Yom Kippur, uh, so repentance isn't important for us. I just would like to remind everyone that at the end of the book of, uh, at the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, yes, Jesus has to say to five of the seven churches in the first three chapters of that book, repent. Repent. Yes, the way we access the atonement and the benefits of the cross is through repentance. But the way that we continue to maintain, right? proper fellowship with God and proper fellowship with each other is also through repentance. And now here comes the parable that we read, the parable of Matthew 21, and its relevance to us today. Relevance is uh, that in the parable there are two, two sons, uh, a father with a vineyard, And he says to the first son, you know, son, this is the family business. This is how uh, we support ourselves. Will Will you go and work in the vineyard? And what does the first son say? The first son shames the father. He rebels and says, no. He probably says to his father, get a life. You know, I'm going off to uh, study art history and you can stay down here on the farm. And then, of course, number one son changes his mind and he goes to work in the vineyard. And then there's number two son. Number two son is the one who says, yes, I'm going to do it, but never ends up doing it. And number two son reminds me very much of a large part of the Christian community today reminds me of the church. You see, because we talk, we talk, and we say the right things, but we don't do. Now, when uh, the prophet Ezekiel was speaking to the people of Israel or trying to warn the people of Israel as, as a century, their excuse was, but wait a minute, we have the temple. We have the ritual. We do all the right, we've got all the right moves. We put the blood in the right place and we burn the animal carcass. You know, how, what's going to happen to us? Yes, and, and the ritual, which was ordained, is ordained by God. Yes, the ritual becomes an excuse, yes, for uh or it becomes something as a, something like a security blanket. Uh, this is going to keep me safe because I'm doing the ritual. In fact, the people of, people of Israel um, at this time, we know from the book of Jeremiah, said God will never hurt Jerusalem. 
because, you know, the temple is here and he's certainly not going to destroy his house. Learn that from Jeremiah chapter 7 and Jeremiah and Ezekiel overlap in many ways. And so the people of Israel had this sort of, uh, you know, they had this, you might say, uh, security blanket or uh, they had um, something that they thought that would protect them. Now, many of us, especially who are Protestants, we don't rely upon a ritual. Yes, we, we accuse other people of doing that, other Christians. But we have our own sort of security blanket. And that security blanket is, hey, I'm born again. I believe. I have all the right doctrine. I have been baptized. I speak in tongues. You know, I give lots of money to the church. I'm a conservative. I don't support abortion. And I'm going to, you know, vote in the, in the right way. Now, there's, uh, believe me, I'm not condoning abortion. I think abortion is a, is a horrible, uh, something horrible. Um... I can't speak about it without shuddering. And I'm not uh, advocating that, uh, you know, we have wrong doctrine or bad teaching. You know, right doctrine is essential. And good teaching is essential. And, you know, having belief is essential. But we talk and we say the right things, and oftentimes we don't do and the question is, are we, will we repent? First and foremost is the Christian community. Because, again, judgment begins in the house of God. And we very easily can say, and many of us are saying at this time, yeah, but it's not my mess. You know, there's a conspiracy somewhere. And it's big tech and some millionaires and it's these politicians and it's people on the left or people on the right. They, they've got us into this mess. Yes. They somehow don't, don't see the hand of God or the hand of judgment in all of this. And like the, those people in chapter 18, the people of Judah, they're easily blaming other people for the mess. They're easily trying to say, no, no, I'm not responsible. Don't put it on me. Like I said, you know, it's my grandparents who were hippies in the 1960s. They created all this, you know, confusion and hopelessness uh, and so on and so forth. But many of us are, are like those exiles. We're confused. Yes, and we don't know who to blame. And if we take the message of the scripture and, and chapter 18 seriously, yes, we are all to blame. And yes, each of us needs to repent. And again, repentance um, has to be something daily. It starts with us as the church. And our message to the outside world is no doubt the message found in Acts 17. You know, God, the time of ignorance has come to an end. God calls everyone to repent.
God calls everyone to repent. Of course, I'm reminded also of Acts chapter 11, when the Gentiles repent, the Jewish believers in the church say, it's amazing, God has granted the Gentiles repentance that's going to lead them to life. Yes, repentance and life are always connected. And so we as the, as the community yes, need to understand that repentance, as I said, it's daily, it's a lifestyle. And the reason it has to be daily and it has to be a lifestyle because God's ultimate goal is transformation and transformation that leads to life. And sometimes change is hard and sometimes change is slow and sometimes change is incremental. And if we think we can wave a magic wand and do it all at once, one shot from God, usually doesn't happen that way. Sometimes it does. But for the most part, it doesn't happen that way. Yes? And so, when we, yes, can reflect upon the seriousness of our situation, take responsibility, not for what may be the sin of others, but for our sin, yes, uh, for the way that we perpetuate uh, immorality or injustice or whatever it may be in this world, then we can and should declare to, to the nations of the world, yes, the time of ignorance is over. God, yes, is now calling upon everyone to repent as a way to escape judgment. Yes, and repentance leads to life. What is life here? Life is union with God through Jesus the Messiah. Yes. In part, not in part, because of the work that he did for us on the cross and the empty tomb. But to enter into that union, to enter into life, is to repent. I'd like to just end by... Quoting the verse, yes, the verse from uh, our liturgy that comes from Psalm 95. It says, um, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. Yes, remember the people of Israel Uh, were delivered by God and they got out into the desert and they started to complain and uh, they started to um, test God and say, why did you bring us out to this place? Again, it was this charge, God, you're not being fair to us. And the Lord said to them, yes, he said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. Yes, though they had seen my work. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know, they shall not come into life. And of course, that generation died in the desert. But for us, yes, we have the opportunity to choose life. We have the opportunity, if we will only hear his voice today and not harden our hearts. Finally, I know this is a long sermon, 
Let me end with a story based on this, on Psalm 95. The story is about a very famous rabbi who probably lived a bit after the time of Jesus. And he used to tell his students, you should repent one hour before you die. And he used to say this all the time. And finally, one student said, but rabbi, when, do, when are we going to die? And he said, that's a very good question. You don't know when you're going to die. Therefore, repent today. And then he quoted this verse. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So, Father, we pray that um, we will indeed be able, Lord, as a community, to take, uh, accept, Lord, with humility, the gift of repentance that you give to each one of us, that we can walk in a way that not only pleases you, but uh, glorifies you and reflects your character. We ask that you will have mercy upon your people, not only your people Israel, but those who call upon you uh, and call upon your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, indeed, we have made many mistakes. We have many weaknesses. We have uh, much uh, apathy and laziness uh, in our ranks. But Lord, we pray that uh, you will give each one of us yes, a new heart and a new spirit and that uh, you will revive us and uh, bless us, Lord, so that we can share the message of life with others. And we ask this again, Lord, in your mercy and for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.